0: Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Julie Roll of the Energy Futures Lab. We'll be discussing the Lead project, leveraging our energy assets for diversification. Some highlights include how to make it easier to utilize oil and gas sites for new developments. We're rocking out today with Julie Roll. Welcome to Stone's Notes. joining me today.
1: Hi, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. So the LEED
0: project's purpose is to clear roadblocks to allow entrepreneurs to utilize existing oil and gas infrastructure sites for new development while also protecting the landowners. What are some of the new developments that are currently being considered?
1: Yeah, great question. So some of the new developments are things like solar and wind, but then there's lots of downhole applications like lithium, which can be extracted from brines. Brines found mostly in Devonian age formations like the Leduc in Alberta. There's also geothermal, hydrogen, helium extraction. CCUS is another one. It's not really technically repurposing, but there's still roadblocks to doing it if you're not using it for enhanced oil recovery. And then there's also some really interesting applications such as like food security. So using sites for greenhouses There's co-production where you can co-produce with some oil and gas products as well. And we've even heard of some rural municipalities that are considering running fiber optic cables in decommissioned pipelines. So pretty much any idea you can come up with, it's possible. But those, those first few are kind of the ones we're looking at right now.
0: Yeah, there's so many different options out there. And you don't often think about the regulatory framework and the requirements to actually pull them off. So you had a couple of case studies in the report and when companies such as Renew Well Solar and Alberta number 1 Geothermal have tried to purchase oil and gas assets for diversification, they've had some challenges. What were some of the issues that they faced?
1: Yeah, so predominantly the number one thing is that there just isn't a clear pathway. There's confusing and inconsistent interpretations of legislation and regulations. So depending on who they talk to, that day, they would get a certain answer, they would get a different answer. And it wasn't clear how some of the sites could be handed between regulatory bodies, where if the AER is the regulator on an oil and gas site, but the AUC, sorry, the Alberta Energy Regulator, the AER or the AUC, the Alberta Utilities Commission is the regulator on a solar site. How does the handoff between those regulators happen to make sure that everything is taken care of? Then there's also difficulty in translating requirements that make sense for oil and gas to other uses. So in the case of oil and gas, you need to have the mineral right for the well bore. But if you're just producing heat, like in the case of geothermal, should you need to have those same mineral rights? So there's a few complications there in translating current requirements into what makes sense for future uses.
0: Yeah, and it could really affect the project economics. Like you think of buying just the mineral rights depending where they are, you could pay quite the premium for them. So it's a good question to be digging into. Definitely. Some of the projects have died in part due to these inflexible regulations. So what are the current regulations and how would you even go about acquiring a well site for something on the surface such as solar?
1: Well, essentially you can't. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) right now, the regulations are such that essentially the, the site needs to be closed with the AER before it can be transferred to the AUC in this particular example. And so closing the site means removing a lot of the things, the infrastructure that you actually want to be in place. So if there's a gravel pad there, you actually want to leave that in place for the solar installation. But to get it off the AER's books, you need to have an issue of reclamation certificate. So that's part of it. And so there's a bit of a gap between the companies that want the sites and the companies that are kind of done with the sites and ensuring that the the right risks and liabilities are taken care of before the transfer happens.
0: Yeah, and for people that aren't familiar with getting a reclamation certificate, it can take up to four years. So if you're a project coming on and you want to put solar on, you don't want to wait four years to get your project up and running. That can really deter you from starting a new business, right?
1: Exactly. And that's actually one of the reasons to go to repurposing. So for an oil and gas company to get a reclamation certificate... So in some cases, four years is actually really fast because you need to do all of the technical and environmental assessment work and downhole work. But you also need to make sure that the vegetation is growing as it should. And you can't just do that in a matter of months, right? You need to actually observe the site for a few years to make sure the vegetation is growing again. So what the oil and gas companies don't have is the time to do that reclamation work. They just want it off their books. But what something like a solar company does have is time to do the reclamation, because hopefully a solar installation will last something like 30 years. And so that timeline isn't as critical to them on the back end as it is for some of these oil and gas companies that just want to move on from these sites.
0: 30 years. Wow, that's quite the life cycle. I know <laughs> Yeah, think of a solar project, so that's interesting to know. So what about if you're doing subsurface diversification downfall in something like geothermal? How would that work right now?
1: Yeah, so actually the cleanest way and the clearest way of doing this is just to create an oil and gas company that essentially would just produce heat in the instance of geothermal. So when you're producing from a well, as we know, there's all kinds of things that come out of the well. There's the natural gas or oil products that come out and all the various forms of those there's often water. And within that water, there's various things like minerals and things like that. But then there's also heat. And so right now, the rules are that if you own the mineral rights, then you own everything else that comes with it. And so that's part of the complication of it all. And so the easiest way is actually just to be an oil and gas company that just happens to produce heat <laughs> along with the other things you produce. A lot of the companies we've talked to that are looking into specializing in these other products, I'll say, don't want to be oil and gas companies and they want to do it under a framework that makes sense for them rather than kind of setting up all the infrastructure that would be required otherwise. But in some cases, it's it's kind of the only way forward at the moment.
0: So you almost have two companies within one. You'd have your geothermal branch and then your oil and gas branch because you need to do both in the same place then, hey?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent, there are companies we're seeing that are doing co-production. But what what you would actually be doing is it's just which product are you planning to sell or commoditize? So are you planning to sell the gas? Are you planning to put it back down hole? Are you planning to just extract the heat? So that would depend on kind of your business model and, and your economic model.
0: Yeah, lots of different ways to go about it. There are currently 95,000 inactive wells in Alberta, which is huge. And all of these wells need to be abandoned and have the environmental work completed in order for them to get the reclamation certificate for the operating company. So these wells have the liabilities associated with them until the final rec certs given to the company. Why would it be so difficult to assign liability to the asset?
1: So it's actually not assigning the liabilities that's difficult. It's about the question of how do you expect a current operator to go forward with past liabilities? So in the past, kind of the model, the economic model within the oil and gas industry has been that divestments move assets from kind of larger producers to smaller producers. And the idea is that the smaller producers don't have the same overhead and they can extract, they can continue to extract value from wells that might not generate value um, for larger companies that might have higher overheads. And so in the past, this liability just gets transferred along the way, but that's not to say that those new companies can handle that liability. That's just how it's been handled. And in this circumstance of transferring it to a new use, the question is, how much of the past liability should be put on future development? And so it's, it's kind of a bit of a disagreement in terms of what's reasonable to expect a new operator to take on in terms of liability when they haven't generated the value from the well essentially over those years. Mm-hmm,
0: exactly. So it's, you know, if somebody that's a startup is taking on all these wells that have a negative value associated with them. If the startup takes off, they can cover it, no problem. But if the startup doesn't, their technology doesn't work, then who's going to deal with those liabilities, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in, in the case of an oil and gas business model, you know, in the way that this has been handled in the past, there was some certainty around that what that might look like. So you could predict, you know, if a company had X number of wells, or if this was their development plan, you could kind of assess the the corporate viability of that entity but with these new cases it's a little bit more uncertain what that looks like
0: so what would you say is the best way to manage these liabilities going forward
1: this was what we called the elephant in the room throughout the entire project <laughs> <laughs> we kept asking that question and we we kept asking ourselves if that was a problem for us to solve and eventually we got to a point where If we didn't at least discuss it, then we couldn't move forward. So, some of the ideas that were generated as a part of our conversation were around somewhat privatizing insuring the liability. And so, whether that's through an insurance product or a green bond, things like that, where the money would be put up up front and then would be in some kind of locked in financial instrument such that when the time came to handle the liability, that money was actually set aside for the future. And so that would look like a commercial agreement between the two parties to kind of understand what would be reasonable in terms of who would pay what for future liabilities. That was kind of the most appealing, it was like a market-driven solution, was kind of the most appealing approach for a lot of the participants.
0: And that's one of the beautiful things about this study. It really does focus on finding a solution. And the way that you put forward to handle the solution was in a short but really impactful draft bill. What were some of the key points in the proposed bill?
1: Yes, so the the three key points were, number one, we felt that decision makers should give preference to developing any of our natural resources on already disturbed land instead of greenfield land. So we felt that it was important that it not be harder to develop on existing land than it is to develop Greenfield. That just felt like kind of a no-brainer to us. Mm -hmm. We also decided that it was important for all the different regulatory bodies to work together to try and find a way that would help businesses navigate the regulatory complexity of trying to do these types of projects. And so we stated in the, in there that the minister who we deem the minister of energy should direct these regulators to uh, create a committee to determine kind of what the path forward is for them and that those recommendations should be provided within one year of the, of the bill becoming law. And we also felt it was important to encourage development on previously disturbed sites on public lands, so on crown land. We found that there wasn't a regulatory or a legislative need to add that. The legislation currently allows for it. It's just a matter of how that legislation is interpreted. So that's another thing we were advocating for, which takes a bit of the development and the pressure off personal landowners because they don't know how this is going to go. And there's a lot of mistrust in the system around that. So that was one of the reasons we wanted to do that.
0: Those are all great suggestions. And I like the idea of having kind of one central place you can go to instead of saying, I don't know where to start. There's that one person, one regulatory body that you phone and they kind of direct you down what applications you need and processes. And even, you know, doing it on land that's already disturbed saves so much environmental footprint, right? So great suggestion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing to that point is, you know, (laughs) some of the headlines that have come out about this project almost make it seem like we're asking for regulations to be relaxed, but that's not the case at all. We're actually just asking for clarification on which regulations apply and which ones don't. So that's the other thing I liked about this is it doesn't play favorites with certain industries. The regulations still need to be upheld. It just needs to be clear how to navigate those.
0: Exactly. There were a couple other legislative approaches that your team examined and then rejected, did you discuss adding timelines to the reclamation steps during the transfer of liability?
1: We didn't discuss timelines partially because this topic is extraordinarily with complexity and opinions and perspectives so that was one of the reasons we also know that the liability management framework is under review and is currently being updated and so we figured that was part of that kind of scope of work and Essentially, what what we defined at the beginning of the project was our, our objective was to make brownfield redevelopment and reuse of oil and gas sites and infrastructure more desirable than greenfield development and more desirable than delaying closure of the sites. And so our objective was not to accelerate closure of the sites. Our objective was to make redevelopment more desirable than delaying closure. And so this is also, there's a nuance in there about we actually would like to see closure happen at an increased pace, but that wasn't something that we dove into in terms of recommendations. Yeah, and it makes
0: sense if it's already part of a different scope, a different project that's being worked on, right?
1: Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah, the other legislative approaches we took, we've got a section in the report that we actually ended up, ended adding at the last minute, because we just felt there were such rich learnings from our steps. We wrote in total four draft bills and three of them were thrown out. And so we feel like there was a lot that could be shared from those learnings. And so that's why we added those in each time along the way, we just got clearer and clearer on what was helpful and what was hindering, um, which was a really interesting part of the, the project as well.
0: It was nice to see that. It really showed how many parties were brought in. And at the beginning, you had a list of everyone that was involved in the project. And it was very lengthy and thorough and diverse. So I think just the extra versions at the end really spoke to that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was kind of upon reflection. We were saying, actually, a lot of the value of this project is in the learnings that we got along the way. So one of those key learnings was that you know, we always talk about transformational change and how you want to make this big impact and stuff. But that's actually really bad for business. (laughs) Because if you introduce a ton of changes and complexity that they need to navigate, it almost will just sink them. And so one of the things it forced us to do was to really be clear on what's the right amount of change to try to introduce that will help, but won't become a burden unto itself. And so that was kind of That was part of the system and the the tensions that we were managing through the course of the project.
0: Yeah, you're trying to make it easier and more enticing, not harder for everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time I've really dug into a bill being implemented. How long do you expect it to take and what are the next steps for us to be watching for?
1: Yeah, great question. So in our minds, the idea of this would be that it could be introduced in the spring session, which of course now we see is on hold for the time being. And with our current COVID situation, I can't imagine this being a priority for the government, <laughs> rightly so. So what I would imagine is if we were to see this, it potentially being introduced in the fall session. That being said, I think there are a lot of things within the report, recommendations, and even the bill that can be done now. We don't need to wait for legislation for those things to happen. So, you know, just getting people to coordinate and, and work together, it's, it's not required to have a, a bill for that. So that can be done anytime now. So it'd be great to hear kind of from the government on their their take on what can be, what, what we can look into starting right away.
0: So are you working closely with the government to get them rolling before the bill?
1: Yeah, so we... We had access to a few folks in the government that could answer questions for us. So they weren't involved specifically in putting together the recommendations with us, but rather helped support us when we were saying, you know, is there, you know, a framework for this already? Or what's the rule on that? You know, those kinds of things. So they were aware of this work coming in. It wasn't a surprise to them. So it'll be interesting to see how we can work forward, work, work together going forward.
0: Well, this is a really neat solution to a big problem going on right now. So really glad to see that Energy's Futures Lab put this together. And thank you so much for sharing it with us today, Julie.
1: Yeah, thanks, Maureen. It's great to be here and really excited to see all this on paper and to kind of be at this point of this learning. So it's been great and so much help and collaboration along the way. So it's great to be a part of. Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can
0: be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.